Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I got a call today from the uh, Louisville Courier Journal, which always makes me extremely nervous uh, because, uh, no, excuse me, the, uh, that's what I used to get a call from. They made me nervous too. This came from the Raleigh News and Observer, which makes me equally nervous. Uh, and they were asking me how could I explain the phenomenon of the fact that we're having such a strong discussion about family values and moral values. And uh, the number one uh, television show is uh, Desperate Housewives. And I said, well, it's really quite easy. We're doing a lot of talking about moral values, but that's a whole different thing than living moral values. I said, furthermore, a lot of people talking about it are politicians, and they're all hypocrites. Now, I'm not speaking for every single one, but just in general, they're hypocrites. And as I shared with her, I don't think this will make the paper, but I shared this with our seminary um, two weeks ago. Uh, Several years ago, Larry Flint sent a free subscription to Hustler magazine to every member of the Senate, every member of the Congress, House of Representatives, and to the president and all the upper-level cabinet. And only 68 people turned it down. What more should I say? And so I went on to tell her also that uh, I thought the show was popular because, one, they've got pretty women in it. Uh, Number two, uh, they've got good writers. Uh, And number three, uh, it appeals to the baser instincts of human beings. And we've had two great days at uh, Southeastern Seminary with Al Mohler lecturing us on the biblical theology of sex, pointing out that this wonderful, good gift that God gave us to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage when it is taken outside of that, goes absolutely ballistic, and it invites every form of perversion, every form of titillation, and that's exactly where our culture is. And so it doesn't surprise me uh, that a show like Desperate Housewives is number one. She said, well, have you ever watched it? I said, no, ma'am. I said, it's really just the marriage counterpart to Sex in the City, and I never watched that either. And I said, that's not the real world. But we have uh, tried to convince the world that the only really good sex takes place as either a single or in adultery. And I said, that's a lie. That's a lie from hell. I don't think that'll probably make the paper either. And at the end, she said, well, you've given me a lot to think about. I'm sure I'll include some of your remarks, and so we'll see. I'm I'm not very confident that they will be of any real value, but be that as it may, uh, it's just an interesting time in which we live. And you say, well, what does that got to do with Colossians? A lot. Because Colossians was addressing a situation in the first century that is very much like the situation in the 21st century, both in terms of what we believe, ideology, and also in terms of how we live, the very practice and everyday living of our lives. What was going on was a false teaching about Jesus 
And because they were thinking wrongly about Jesus, they were thinking wrongly about every aspect of the Christian life, including the way they should live. And so Paul gets to the heart of the matter. And if you look on the very first page, what is the theme of this book? The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Along with the book of Revelation, no book exalts the preeminence of Christ more than the book of Colossians. The author is Paul, the bearer of the letter, probably Tychicus and Onesimus. Uh, we'll see later that uh, I believe that Philemon lived in uh, uh, Colossae. And so perhaps this letter goes to the house church uh, that Philemon attended that perhaps was even pastored by his son. And we'll talk about that when we get to Philemon. So it was written to the church at Colossae, as we will see in a moment, a church that Paul had not visited. Because it is in his first Roman imprisonment, we again date it between 60 and 63 A.D. Why did he write Colossians? Why did Paul take the time to write a letter to a church he had never visited? Well, Epaphras, with news about heretical teaching at Colossae, had come to see Paul in Rome. And apparently the heresy was a blending of Judaism, very legalistic, and what we call incipient Gnosticism, which as we will see in a moment, placed a great deal of emphasis upon mystical knowledge as the basis of salvation, and also the fact that they believed that the body, the material world was evil, and so that affected both, again, their thinking about Jesus as well as the way they lived their life. A couple of key verses we could perhaps point as chapter 1, verse 27, where the Apostle Paul writes, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in chapter 2 and verse 10, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Though I think you could also make a good argument for chapter 1, verse uh, 18 being a key verse, chapter 1, verse 19 being a key verse, and even chapter 2, verse 9 being a key verse, as each of those verses address the person of Christ. If you look at page 2, we could say that the preeminence of Christ could be described this way. Christ is everything. And I've broken for you uh, the book down in paragraph divisions. If you look at the bottom of the page, you'll notice right above key verse that there really is a very consistent pattern to the book in that it begins on a personal note and it ends on a personal note. The heart of the book is found in the middle where you have a very polemical, a very confrontational portion of teaching. And then that is uh, uh, sort of sandwiched on the front end, as is classic with Paul, doctrine. And on the back side, as is classic with Paul, practice. And so he puts a polemical section right in the heart of the book, sandwiching it both with doctrinal teaching and practical teaching. And again, as I said a moment ago, we might say, here's the key verse. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So in every direction, if we were kind of drawing a diagram, we could put in the center of a wheel Christ and drawing spokes out from that. Everything flows from and flows to Jesus Christ. You get it right about Christ. You'll have it right about everything, but you miss it there and your whole system of theology and practice will come unraveled and will fall apart. Turn to page three. Then we're going to walk through the background material quickly. It's going to be a similar pattern to what we've done previously. The book is one of the four prison letters of Paul, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, unanimously affirmed as authentic by the early church. 
Indeed, church tradition is in agreement that the epistle was indeed written by Paul as it is claimed in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 23. Citations begin with the early father Irenaeus, which is in the middle of the second century. The letter was assumed to be Pauline until, again, the modern era, the rise of the Enlightenment, rationalism, when critical scholars argue for its dependence upon Ephesians, which they also said Paul didn't write, and uh, alleged non-Pauline ideas. Various views of the authorship, a second century Gnostic work, a shorter and genuine Colossians worked over with an anti-Gnostic polemic by a later author. How do you like that for a mouthful? Genuine with some later interpolations and interpolations where you add in some material that comes later that was not written there by the initial author. Uh, second, fourthly, a non-Pauline work of Pauline uh, disciples and Pauline admirers. And then, no, everything said and done, we ought to argue it is genuinely Pauline. Well, what are the issues related to authenticity? There are three big ones. I'm just going to hit them quickly. Number one, it is said the language and the style of the book is problematic. Concerning vocabulary and sentence structure, there are 36 Pauline, and I just feel like I ought to throw this in at once in our study, the phrase half-ax legomena. Now, I expect my seminary students to know that. If they ever use that word when they're preaching from the pulpit, I will throw a hymn book at them because they'll be ashamed of themselves. But we're teaching time on Wednesday night so I can get away. It simply means a word that occurs one time. Half-ax means one. Legomene means to speak. And so there are 36 words in Colossians that have a one-time occurrence. And your skeptical, cynical scholars say, well, Paul didn't use this kind of vocabulary. Therefore, since Paul didn't use this kind of vocabulary, Paul couldn't have written the book. Now, let me also point out, they also say, well, you can't look at Ephesians and find common words. And you can't look at the pastorals because, and look for common words because we've also already determined in advance that Paul couldn't have written Ephesians and Paul couldn't have written the pastorals. Which, again, you start playing that kind of game and you can basically create any kind of view of authorship authenticity that you want to. In other words, what they basically do is they decide, here's my position. And if the evidence doesn't fit my position, I start whacking off evidence. Well, that's just not a very scholarly, fair, or balanced way to do anything. And I, so I find this so unconvincing and in any ways uh, almost embarrassing that men of good intellect actually have argued in this kind of a way. Then some say, well, there are a lot of cumbersome sentences and uh, some of Paul's key ideas that we find in other books, you don't find them here. Well, here's our first reply. The cumbersome style, we, well, we don't deny that there are some sentences like that, may result from the use of worship materials and uh, the polemical context. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in a moment, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Many Bible scholars, myself included, believes that Colossians 1, 15 through 20 was an early Christian hymn. I believe they used to sing it in worship. Now, Paul may have written it. Paul may have bought it and brought it in as a hymn that was already in place that did such a marvelous job of exalting the preeminence of Christ. Well, my point is simply this. If I were to pick up, and I'll, well, here's one. If I were to pick up a hymnal and I were to read a hymnal to you, one of these songs to you, I don't talk normally in the same way that a hymn sounds. I don't talk hymnically. I may use a hymn when I write. I may use a hymn when I preach. But I don't talk in this style so that if I'm reading a hymn, if I didn't even tell you, 
You would be tipped off that I'm using something, speaking in a way that I normally do not do. And so that argument, in my way of thinking, carries no weight at all because a hymn would have a different kind of structure, a different kind of vocabulary. It would just be different than the regular, normal way you write a letter. Write a letter to your wife or to your husband. And you're going through the letter just sharing your heart, how much you love them, how much you miss them. And maybe you're very gifted in the area of poetry. I am not. In my 26 plus years of being married to Charlotte, I have never written her a poem. Uh, if I did in this at this stage, she'd think I lost my mind. Uh, if I did, she would probably be offended because it would be so poorly written. I'm not wired. No one says, "Oh, Doctor Aiken, you know, he just has kind of a, an artistic bent to him." Now, I've never been accused of that. That that's just not the way I am wired. But let's just argue for a moment that I that I am. And so I'm just writing her a letter. And then all of a sudden I go into roses are red, violets are blue. I love you, boo, boo, boo. Or something, you know, something really bad like that. Well, anyway, all of a sudden the genre, the style of my letter has changed. Why? Because I'm using a hymn. I'm using poetry. I'm using something in that kind of style of writing. So, again, those kind of arguments are just really poor. Then think about polemics. Now, this is where I'm kind of this way. You get me really energized about something, and man, my rate of speed goes up, my volume goes up, my intensity goes up, and I'm all of a sudden like a machine gun just rattling off phrases that maybe if I sat back and thought about them a little bit more carefully, I would nuance and tweak a bit. Chapel a few weeks ago, I said, any guy that tries to take the virginity away from a woman is a scum-sucking dog. Now... Normally, I don't use the phrase scum-sucking dog. In fact, I received a letter from one person. It scared me because usually when I get letters for that kind of stuff, it's saying, I can't believe that a man of God would speak in that kind of a way. But I got a letter that said, scum-sucking dog. Very colorful metaphor. First time I've heard it in a pulpit. It's all right with me. I just wouldn't use it on a regular basis. Well, I don't use it on a regular basis. I use it. When I get kind of fired up, well, when Paul gets fired up, go read Galatians and read here. He just sort of kind of comes after you and the words are just flowing really rapidly. And yes, you're not really worried about sentence structure at that point. You're worried about making a point. So, again, that's a long way of saying these kind of arguments are just really, really poor. Furthermore, the admission of key concepts is not significant. Why? Because Paul is attacking a specific, unique heresy that has a Christological problem. And furthermore, those one-time words are mostly in the traditional material, or they may be compound words that we find in other places of Paul's writing. And so that simply is not a very good argument to argue against the authorship of Paul. Let's drop down. Number two, theological ideas. Well, they will say the Christology the ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, the idea of tradition. It's just different than the way Paul normally argues. So here's their argument. Then in the brackets, I'll give you a quick response. It is said that the form of the Gnostic heresy, this heresy that says basically two things, matter is evil, salvation is by knowledge. Just keep that in your mind. Anytime you hear someone say Gnosticism, matter is evil, Salvation is by knowledge. Matter is evil. Salvation is by knowledge. And then understand, that's going to have all sorts of fallout for what you think about salvation, Jesus, your Christian life, and so on. Well, this is an older argument. 
And it would depend upon the heresy being a very significantly developed Gnosticism, which you read Colossians, doesn't sound like that at all. Indeed, an emphasis on knowledge as being the way to God is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 5. And no one has ever said, well, we find full-blown Gnosticism in, in 1 Corinthians. So Paul couldn't have written 1 Corinthians. It's just not a very persuasive argument anymore. Secondly, it is said the expression of Paul's understanding of Christ is different from the Colossians' understanding. In Colossians... Why, Christology is cosmic and universal and comprehensive. Why, he's Lord of everything. But they will say, no, Paul's Christology usually works in salvation categories. And usually has more of a legalistic justification, righteousness kind of thrust. But cosmic Christology is found, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, 8, 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Galatians 4, 3, 4, 9, Philippians 2, 10, and Romans 9, 5. That simply is not a, an accurate argument. Number three, it said Paul's understanding of the church difference from what we see in Colossians. Colossians, uh, its ecclesiology is universal, whereas everywhere else, Paul is only interested in a local ecclesiology. He's just interested in the local church particularly Christ as the head of the body. Well, that's utterly unique. Well, I would stop and say, is it? First of all, the cosmic character of ecclesiology and especially Christology is a lot like some of the things you read in the early chapters of the early history of the church in the book of Acts. And in its traditional forms, it shows that these concepts were already available to Paul. Furthermore, Christ as the head of the body it's found in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 1, 12, and Galatians 3. That argument, likewise, is simply false. Number four, letter D. The expression of Paul's eschatology differs from Colossians. It is said that Colossians' eschatology is expressed in present terms, what we get from Jesus now, and is more cosmic than Paul's, which is more future-looking and more interested in the imminent return of Christ. And they will point out, well, you know, the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment, is largely absent in Colossians. Well, that actually is true, that last statement. But here's the point. The idea of hope, which is very prominent in Colossians, is found in Romans 5, Romans 8, Philippians 3. Christ as mystery, which is very prominent in Colossians, is found in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 10. Being raised with Christ and being uh, given new life right now. <laughs> Found in Romans 6, 8. The fact is, eminence is a characteristic mainly found in the two Thessalonian epistles, though it is mentioned and alluded to elsewhere in Paul. But the issue in this heresy was not primarily future things, eschatology. The problem at Colossae was the way it took present attention away from Christ in some type of realized knowledge where all that I'm going to get in Christ, I'm getting right now. And Paul says, no, do you get a lot when you receive Christ as Savior? You better believe it. But is that, to quote Paul Harvey, the rest of the story? No, there's much more to come right now. You have been justified. You have been converted. You have been regenerated. You're in the process of sanctification. But eventually out there, the process is completed in this wonderful thing called glorification. And there is that balance even in the book of Colossians. Letter E. 
The letter shows it says excessive dependence upon tradition and on apostolic authority, which is unlike Paul. For example, the author Colossians uses his opponent's terms rather than rejecting them. He uses tradition without giving Pauline explanation, which is Paul's style. Well, to back up, Paul is capable of using traditional material without comment. He does so in Romans 1 and Philippians 2. Furthermore, Paul's focus on his ministry has adequate antecedents in Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians. Also, and this is the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, to my way of thinking, capsulating argument. This church was not founded by an apostle. So apostolic endorsement of its message would be important, much like Romans, which Paul wrote to a church he also had not yet visited. In other words, Paul is writing to Colossae. He's never been to Colossae. He needs to establish his authority with the Colossians. It makes perfectly good sense then that that emphasis of apostleship falls here. Finally, letter F, treatment of baptism is more comprehensive in Colossians than it is in Paul. Well, not if you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and not if you read Romans 6, 3 through 5, and not if you read Philippians 1, 20 through 21, which all have concepts that are parallel to the ideas we find in Colossians. And then some raise the issue of Colossians' relationship to both Ephesians and Philemon as an argument against it, but it's very, very weak. And so just turn over to page 6 and look at the top under the conclusion. When everything is said and done, you've analyzed it in very careful detail, the evidence is supportive of the view that the letter is authentic and that Paul wrote it and that Paul wrote this letter like he did Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon during his first Roman imprisonment, hence the place of writing. Rome is the traditional location. Again, like I've done previously, give you some arguments against it. They're weak. We'll move to date of writing. This, again, is a prison letter. It may be the first. If that is the case, since his imprisonment started about A.D. 60, we might could put it in the early 60 uh, or 61 time period with uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon coming later, although... Most likely, Colossians and Philemon would have been written about the same time as well. Again, gun to my head, and there's no reason to worry about it. I like the order of Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians being last, but there's no way to be dogmatic about it, and there's no reason to be. But now, here's something I find fascinating. I've shared with you for several weeks now Paul's missionary strategy, Paul's strategy for church planting. Paul went to the big cities. Paul knew if he could get a base of operation for the gospel in the big cities, the big cities then would evangelize the smaller cities in the surrounding area. Does that then mean that Paul really did not have any great concern for the outlying areas? And does that mean that Paul was not all that concerned with the smaller churches, in particular the smaller house churches? And Colossians gives us a resounding answer. No, he did think of them. He was concerned about them. He was interested in them. As we're going to see, he's never been to Colossae. And furthermore, Colossae was just a little cow town by now with no real significance whatsoever. Colossae was a comparatively unimportant city. In fact, it was the least significant of the cities to which Paul addressed any of his letters. It was located near two other cities, Laodicea and Heropolis. All three cities were on the Lycus River in Phrygia, which is modern south-central Turkey, top of page 7, on a highway leading east from Ephesus to the Euphrates area. 
The cities were approximately 100 miles east of Ephesus. Colossae was once an important city, but by the first century, it was a market town, smaller than both Laodicea and Heropolis. Wealthy Jewish merchants living in the area would have had some impact on the thinking of religious people in the area, but most likely... Paul is writing to a church that, one, meets in a house, though most churches met in a house. But secondly, he's writing to a church church in a house that was very small. I agree with most scholars who would say there's probably no way the church had more than 30 or 40 people. Very unlikely it would have been much bigger than that. And yet Paul receives a report. Paul's in prison. He can't get there. But Paul cares enough about this little congregation to write what I think is in many ways the most relevant of all of Paul's letters in the 21st century. Because the 21st century is more like the 1st century than at any other time in our nation. And Colossians was a letter that addressed the burning issues of that day, which also addresses the burning issues of our day as well. In particular, what do you think about Jesus? So the church at Colossae, not founded by Paul, he writes after hearing of their faith in Christ in 2.1. He says he has not seen their face. Evidently, the church was founded during Paul's stay at Ephesus in Acts 19. It is likely that Epaphras was the founder of the church. It seems that the church was primarily a Gentile church. Several passages give this impression. And I'll just note the last one, the last sentence. There's not one single Old Testament quotation in this letter, which would indicate that Paul was writing to an audience that would not have been all that familiar with the Old Testament. Hence, there's not one single Old Testament quotation in Colossians. Now, the big question. What was the false teaching at Colossae? And this, by the way, will help us later when we get to the epistles of John, when we get to the book of Jude, because a problem, Gnosticism, that they were addressing there is also being addressed here. So, very quickly. It seems Epaphras had brought a report of the heresy that was threatening the health of the church. The false doctrine seemed to have two convergent streams, Judaism and incipient or early stages of Gnosticism. There are a number of allusions to the first of these. For example, there are references to circumcision. And uh, Paul also discusses dietary regulations and Jewish holidays. There is a reference to angel worship which also would indicate a possible Jewish perversion and emphasis in chapter 2 and verse 18. So Judaism had slipped in, and Judaism was influencing some of the ways of their thinking, but being very syncretistic, being very eclectic. You say, what does that mean? Think in terms of vegetable soup, or even better than that. Think in terms of it's time to clean out the refrigerator. But we've got to eat. I mean, we've got to eat. So we're just going to get everything that's in there that, that still has a decent smell. And, of course, this works for married people, not for unmarried people. A few years ago, two years ago, as a matter of fact, my wife and I went to Murray, Kentucky, where my son Nathan was living with another boy. And when we walked in, first of all, their shower was the floor was the cover color of this. It was that color. My son Paul scrubbed it with Brillo pads for three hours, and it, there actually was a white thing underneath the bottom. Then we went into the refrigerator, and just by looking at the Tupperware stuff, my wife said, don't open that. I said, I need to see. No, 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 don't, don't touch that. Do not touch that. No. I said, what are you going to do with it? Throw it away. Throw it away? That's a nice Tupperware thing. Not anymore. 
Not anymore. And she was right. Nathan gets back from basketball. I said, son, just, you know, dad's just trying to kind of connect with you a little bit here. You know, glad to be here. What's in there? I don't know. How long has it been in there? I think that that stuff mama cooked when she was here six months ago. Now, you all, some of you who used to be single guys, you know that you can be pigs and animals like that. I mean, my wife has said to me in her less spiritual moments, I've watched you guys. Men will do things a dog won't do. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'm not really honored by that. But, you know, there probably is some truth to that. But if you go in there and you find stuff that looks edible, you may just get a big old pot, pour it all in there, throw some water in there, boil that stuff, and you've got some kind of soup. Now, it's just a little bit of everything. Well, Gnosticism, blended with Judaism, just gave you, they didn't mind. Just pull something from here, pull something from there. And it was just a syncretistic soup of religious thinking that eventually kind of had these foundational planks. Look at the next major paragraph. Gnosticism had two major premises. One, matter is intrinsically and essentially inferior or evil. And two, salvation comes through mystical knowledge. Good is found only in the spirit world. Very Platonic, very Greek in their thinking here. Not an Aristotelian way, but in a Platonic way. This basic premise then led to all sorts of teachings and just throw the legalistic Judaism in there and you get really some interesting things. So, for example, if matter is evil, then the supreme and good God could not have made it. How then... Did matter come into being? Well, this was explained by saying that God put out a series of emanations. Think in terms of throwing a rock into a lake and you see the reverberating uh, tides of the of the effect of the rock going out. And so the further you got out from the center, you finally got to a God who was so far removed from the real God. He could, as an evil emanation, create matter and this material world. And they said the bad, evil emanation they called him the Demiurge is equal to the Old Testament God. The Old Testament God is not a good God. He's a bad God who made the material world. Well, you say, well, wait a minute, I can even see a problem coming here. What in the world do you do with the incarnation? That's easy. You deny it. So, if matter is evil, then Christ did not have a physical body. He was a phantom. Or maybe we can say it this way, the Christ spirit may have come upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but he left him at the cross so that the man Jesus was born and the man Jesus died. And only in that three-year interim did he have the empowerment of this Christ spirit. Of course, this then means that Jesus Christ ultimately could not have saved mankind because, number one, he did not become flesh and blood. And I would add also, he was not the one. The Christ did not die on the cross. Just this man, Jesus, died on the cross. Thirdly, this doctrine had implications in the realm of your morality and ethics. And it took two radical forms, two extreme forms. One side, because matter is evil and our bodies are made of matter, said we must be aesthetics. The only way you deal with the body is to starve it, beat it, deny it. It's the monastic mindset. The other side said, well, no, if my body doesn't matter, then I'm going to eat, drink and be merry. I'll be a libertine. Doesn't matter what I do with my body. So I can indulge in any and every and all sorts of sensual practices. As long as I find it meaningful to me, then there's nothing wrong with that. Welcome to the first and the 21st century of morals and ethics. 
Next, there was also a great stress on mystical knowledge. There was much speculation, philosophizing about these emanations, secret knowledge. Thus, salvation became a matter of knowledge, not of faith. And strangely, the rituals of Judaism, the esoteric knowledge of incipient Gnosticism, joined forces to produce this very bizarre heresy that Paul combats in this letter. And providentially, this crucially important letter was written to a group of believers in an, insig- in an insi- insignificant town that was necessary to check the false doctrine that has much in common, much in common, with modern New Age teaching. And so I've talked about the occasion. I've talked about the bearer. We have about ten minutes. Let's walk through quickly. One of the most majestic, and I intend to preach on this sometime in chapel in the near future, one of the most majestic passages in all of the Bible, Colossians 1, 13 through 20. I'll hit the outline, make some passing comments, maybe hopefully to whet your appetite to study it further. There are four things in this text that he speaks of in terms of the lordship of Christ. First of all, he is Lord of the cross, or he is our Savior. Look at verse 13. He, that is speaking of God the Father, because the Father is mentioned in verse 12 and is the near antecedent to that pronoun. He, that is the Father, has first of all delivered us from or out of the power of darkness. Secondly, he has conveyed or transferred us, given us a new address. Where? In the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And thirdly, in him, that is, or in whom, speaking of Jesus now, We have redemption, the payment of a price, in order to purchase a slave, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. And so though the cross is not mentioned specifically, clearly the concept is there. And so what has he done? You see the outline. He delivered us from the power of Satan, the power of darkness. Secondly, he transferred us into the principality of his sovereignty. We now live in the kingdom of the son that he loves. And thirdly, he has redeemed us through the payment of his son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the Lord of the cross. He is our savior. But now, secondly, he is also the Lord of communication or he is the revealer. Verse 15, he now this he is a reference to Jesus because the Son is the near antecedent of verse 15. He is the icon, the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, very quickly, the first part of verse 15 is simply saying this. Jesus Christ, the Son, makes visible the invisible God. No one has seen God But the Son made that invisible God known. He is the image. You see my outline. He is the representation of God. He is the reflection of God. He makes visible the invisible God. But then he is also said to be the prototokos, the firstborn over all creation. Now, two things there. Let me work backwards. First of all, mark the word all. The word all occurs eight times. In verse 15 through verse 20, he is talking about the comprehensive lordship of Jesus Christ. Then secondly, the word firstborn. That is a word that causes us difficulty because we hear firstborn. And we think that means that the son was the firstborn of God. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses, following in the pattern of the ancient Arian heresy, said 
God made the Son, and through the Son He made everything else. And as His firstborn, He is the first one born of God, the first one that God created. Now, that sounds fine in English. The problem is that's not what the word firstborn means. The word firstborn speaks much more of preeminence and much more of priority. In other words, I'll give you an example. If you were to ask the question, name me the sons of Abraham. Correct answer would be Isaac and Ishmael. Now, I gave them to you in the wrong order, didn't I? Ishmael came first. Isaac came second. But if you were to ask, which of the two is his firstborn? The answer would be Isaac. Because Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the son of preeminence. Isaac was the son of position. If you doubt me, and I will prove it two ways. Right in the margin, Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27, because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it is said that David's son, who is the Messiah, is the firstborn. And it uses the exact same word. Well, we know that the Messiah is not the firstborn son of David. He is actually a great, great, great grandson. But the word firstborn is telling us that the Messiah is what? The preeminent one. The one of position. The one of excellence and supremacy. And so he is Lord of communication as the revealer. He is the representation of God, the manifestation of God. But then thirdly, he is also Lord of creation. Now, I'll prove my argument about firstborn another way. And I'll show you how the cults help us out. Verse 16 says in the New King James, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things, not some things or most things, all things were created through him and for him. And let's go ahead, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now, here's my point. If Jesus the Son, if the Christ the Son, created everything that has ever been created, and that is what the text says. Let's do a little philosophy, a little logic. If he made everything that has ever been made, question, can he himself be a creature? No. If he made everything that has ever been made, he cannot be a creature. He can only be the creator. And to a Jew of the first century, the creator was the God of what? Genesis 1.1. Now, let me tell you how the cults help us. I should have brought it with me, but I didn't have a chance to go back by the house. If I had brought with me this evening my New World Translation, which I have three or four copies of it, that is the Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you turn over to Colossians 1, verse 15, and you read this verse in the New World Translation, here's what you would read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all other things, and the word other, to their credit, has brackets around it, telling you the word other is not in the original text. Why did they add the word other? Because they understand my logic. If he made everything that's ever been made, he cannot be a creature. He can only be the creator, which makes him God. So they changed the Bible to fit their theology, something we have to be careful we don't do. And they make it say, and he is what? By him, all other things. In other words, 
God made the sun. The sun made everything else. There's only one thing wrong. That's not what the text says. The text says he made everything. The text says he is before everything. The text says in him, everything holds together. In other words, he is Lord because of his sovereignty, because of his agency, because of his priority, and because of his consistency. He holds together. This world would fly apart. All of the atoms and molecules of this created order would go into bedlam and would go into disorder if the sun was not holding all things together by the power of his deity. He made it. He sustains it. He is before it. He is in the middle of it. He is after it. I don't know how Paul could make any clearer his deity. I've often said to people, you might, I don't think so, but you might convince me that Paul is wrong. But don't ever insult my intelligence and tell me Paul did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. He did. Now, he might be wrong on that. I don't think so. But don't come and say, well, actually, that's not really, really what verses 15, 16, and 17, and 18 mean. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is clear as the print on the page. He, whoever wrote this, believed that Jesus Christ was the eternal, divine Son of God. Say he was wrong, fine. Don't twist his words and make it say something he did not say. Finally, he gets personal with it. He's also Lord of the church. He says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent one, the first of a new order from the dead. You see the parallelism of Paul's argument? It's really magnificent. He is head over the material creation. He's head over the spiritual creation. He's over the creation of Genesis 1, and he's over the creation of Matthew 16, the church. Whether it be the physical or the spiritual creation, he is the head over both. And so he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that what? Now, here it is. In all things, he may have first place, the preeminence. Now, you might say, well... Why should he have first place? Paul says, I'll be glad to tell you, verse 19, because it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And you ought to cross-reference verse 19 with chapter 2, verse 9, where he really expands out his argument even better and says, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a body. In other words, Paul says, whatever it is that makes God God, he has got all of that in its fullness. That's why then... He should have first place in the church. He will argue in verses 21 through 23. That's why he should have first place in the life of every Christian. And he kind of brings it to a conclusion in verse 20 and says, because then he is God in flesh, because he is preeminent over the material and the spiritual creation, because he is to have first place in everything, then by him, God could reconcile not some, not most, all things to himself by him, whether things on earth, Things in heaven, and he did so how? By having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, when he says he reconciles all things to himself, he's not saying in the end everybody will be saved. He is saying in the end everyone will bow under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We're back to Philippians 2 last week. But he is saying that all things will come to their fitting and appropriate end. You know, it really is true, though tragic. God is glorified 
by his judgment of hell. God is glorified in everything that God does. And those who walk over a bloody cross of their own free will into hell demonstrate the righteous, justice, holiness, and appropriateness of God's judgment. And in that, God is glorified even in the damnation of sinners as he is glorified in the salvation of sinners as well. And therefore, in the end, C.S. Lewis said, there'll be those who say, thy will be done. And there'll be those who for all of eternity will say in their own heart, my will be done. I've often said that unbelievers would not be happy in heaven. They don't want to bow the knee willingly to the Son. They don't want to worship His majesty and His glory. You say, well, we wish they were in heaven anyway. I do too in one sense. But the fact is, given their heart, and God will not overrule. I am no fatalist. I'm no hyper-Calvinist. God is not going to overturn their cold-hearted rebellion toward Him. They would be absolutely miserable. In fact, heaven would be hell for them. In a real perverted sense, heaven would be hell for the one who has shaken his fist in the face of God and said, I'd rather do it my way. So Lewis was right. There are those who say, thy will be done. There are those who for all of eternity will say, my will be done. And here Paul says, in the end, all things will be reconciled and made right in him. How? By the peace that he made through the blood of his cross. Because of that, he certainly deserves the preeminent position in our life. Beautiful text on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Colossians is a short little four-chapter book, but what a powerful message, both in terms of its Christology, in terms of its doctrine of salvation, and in terms, Lord, of what it means for us to live and to honor you. I cannot help but think even now what you wrote in three one: If then you were raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above and not on the things of earth. Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. With such a promise as that, we can indeed put to death those things which are sinful and ugly. We can put off those things that remind us of the old life. And we can put on the new things of love the new things of peace, the new things of the mind of Christ, and the new things of thanksgiving, and in the process, bring great honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone deserves to have the preeminent position. This is our prayer. We make it in our Lord's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. 
We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.